to the RPC Sermons Podcast. You can join us for virtual worship every Sunday at roswellpress.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning again. Welcome to worship at RPC. It's so good to be in worship with you this morning. I want you to know that elder nominations are open, and so you can nominate elders. If you're new to the Presbyterian Church, the Presbyterian Church has a, a form of church government. It's a representative democracy, which means we elect elders to govern us for three years. They're going three-term cycles. So if you know of somebody that's gifted, you think God is calling this person to be a servant leader here at the church, make a nomination. Nominate, put their name in. There should be boxes out here by the coffee, and I know up in the narthex there are. We'd love to have a great class of elders to lead us in the next stage of RPC's future. Well, today we continue our sermon series, Beginnings, looking at the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. A couple weeks ago, we looked at those first two creation accounts in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and we saw that God calls things in creation good. He says it's it's very good. And then last week, we saw in Genesis 3 is when things begin to go wrong, the disobedience of the first humans. And I got bad news for you. It goes from bad to worse in Genesis 4. (laughs) And it's no laughing matter. So let us open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, our ears to hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 4, verses 1 through 16. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel, for his part, brought the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.
Gracious and loving God, I ask that in the next few moments you might be our teacher, that you by your spirit might speak a word to our hearts that only you can speak. Lord, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Happy families are all alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. With these words, the Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy begins maybe the greatest novel ever written, Anna Karenina. The line has gone on to be one of the most iconic sentences in all of literature. It expresses what's come to be known as the Anna Karenina Principle. The basic idea of the Anna Karenina Principle is that there are almost an infinite, a million ways to go wrong. And there are very few ways to go right. There are a million ways to be unhappy in this life. And there are few ways to get it right. And family dynamics provide plenty of opportunities to witness the truth of Tolstoy's point. No one has a perfect family. Amen? Dad's insistence on coming home to a clean house annoys mom. Susie's endless use of the bathroom just irritates her siblings. Johnny's eardrum-busting music drives his sister nuts. The neighbors are always complaining about the family dog. Everyone feels like they do more household chores than anyone else. And if anyone forgets to unload the dishwasher, mow the lawn, wash the car, clean the gutters, guess what? Say goodbye to your happy family. Happy families are all alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. If anyone thinks they're going to have a perfect, happy family, they're in for big trouble. Perfection in this life is hard to attain. For me, it's been impossible to attain. Which is, I'll be honest with you, has the effect of making me feel like a loser. (laughs) If I can't be perfect, then I must be a failure. There is a theological orientation to the world that says, if perfection is possible, it is required. If perfection is possible, it is required. And if you believe perfection is required, then there is no end to the number of books you will buy to help you achieve perfection. There's nothing you won't do in aspiring to be perfect. There's no religious ritual you won't go through to attain perfection. There's no self-righteous judgment you won't feel about your family members when they fail to measure up to the perfect standard. Now, in my family growing up, we tried to be religiously the perfect family. You see, after attending a conference emphasizing the importance of biblical principles for building up the family, we began rising every morning at 6.30 a.m. for what was called Wisdom Search. 6.30 to 7 a.m., we would read every morning. We would read five psalms and a proverb. We did this starting in middle school until I escaped home every morning. Now, I know what some of you are asking. How in the world 
Did your parents get you up and your sister and your brother? Well, they were very creative. And they would go to the family stereo system and they would turn it on to max volume. And then they would play a little jaunty song at max volume. It went something like this. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I hope you're feeling fine. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's time to rise and shine. And it would play on loop until we were up. And that explains a lot. And contrary to the lyrics, at 6.30 a.m., I definitely was not feeling fine. But every morning, there we were, reading our Bibles, trying to be a good Christian family. That conference said, this is the way to do it. And so that's what we were going to do, become the perfect family. Now, growing up in the 80s and 90s, there was an entire industry centered on helping create religious, Christian, perfect families through what was sometimes known as biblical family values. For me, it involved watching McGee and me videos with my sister. I read, I kissed dating goodbye as a teenager. I only listened to the Christian radio station. I had the traumatic experience of driving from Spokane, Washington to Missoula, Montana with my dad as he made me listen to the founder of Focus on the Family, Dr. James Dobson, provide sex education. If you want to ruin your adolescent son's interest in sex, that is the way to do it. Now, I'm not saying that these things haven't done some good in people's lives, that these organizations haven't made a positive impact at various times and places. But what I've recognized over the years as I've thought about it is that at the center, there is a great lie. And that's what's, there's a great lie at the heart of the biblical family values movement, that it's ever possible to create the perfect family. That there is some ideal that we should aspire to that, that when we should do whatever we can to achieve it. See, for being a fundamentalist, for all the wisdom searching we did, we didn't read the Bible closely enough. Have you ever paid attention to the stories the Bible tells about families? It's remarkable, if you pay attention closely, the novel and creative ways that the families in the Bible will go to be imperfect. I mean, today, in Genesis 4, we are in the second generation of humanity, and one brother kills the other. How's that for brotherly love? The patriarch will read in Genesis 12, Abraham and Sarah, they get together, they go on the run. You'll read in Genesis 20, they discover Sarah is his half-sister. Ew! Even after that, Abraham and Sarah... They're barren, can't have children. God miraculously intervenes. They have a son, Isaac. What does Abraham do? He almost goes and sacrifices him. King David, the greatest king in Israelite history, has a man murdered, steals his wife, fathers a child with her. David went on to go to epic efforts to have an imperfect family. His son Solomon had almost a thousand wives and concubines. God commanded the prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute. When she kept leaving him, God told Hosea to take her back, Gomer. It's a great story. You should read it. 
And I know some of you are going, well, Jeff, I mean, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? I knew you were going to say that. First Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, do you remember what he writes? He says, don't get married. It'll save you a lifetime of pain and agony. That's my translation. <laughs> but that's what he says. Now, some of you are going, oh, sure, Jeff, okay. What about Jesus? What about Jesus? Well, the New Testament tells some fascinating stories about Jesus. We see Jesus relativizes the nature of family. Now, these stories, we often don't read in church. We don't quote them at vacation Bible school. These are, this is not the hallmark version of Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Listen to this. While he was still speaking to the crowds, while Jesus is still speaking to the crowds, his mother and his brothers were standing outside. So Mary and his brothers come, and they want to speak to him. And someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. But to the one who had told him this, Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus says, family goes way beyond biological connection. It has to do with your faith, what you share, where you put your weight down. In Jesus Christ, it's not your DNA or your matching genetic code. No. He redefines and relativizes the nature of family. Now, some of you close readers say, oh, that's just for mothers and brothers, not for fathers. Well, I knew you were going to ask that. Matthew 23, listen to this. Jesus is teaching. He says, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all students. Then he says this, and call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. You ever see that? Jesus relativizes the relationship we have to our fathers. And for some folks, this is a huge relief. The perfect family is impossible to achieve. We are all here living by grace. And as soon as you realize this, you'll treat others with more grace and yourself with more grace. And this is fundamental to the Christian faith. In the fourth century, this issue came up between a guy who was a North African bishop named Augustine, another monk and theologian named Pelagius from Rome. And the Christian church asked this question, is perfection required of Christians? Is perfection required? Now Pelagius was like, think of him as like the ancient version of Tony Robbins. He was eloquent, he was a motivational speaker, he was passionate. And he believed you should strive for perfection. So one time there were these concerned parents. Their daughter was Demetrius. They came from an upper class family of some means. And Demetrius was engaged to be married. Well, she breaks off her engagement. She wants to give away all her possessions. And she wants to go to a convent and become a nun. And her parents are mortified. And so they write to Pelagius. And they say, would you talk some sense into her? Talk her out of this. And Pelagius responds. He says, I will not. She's doing the right thing. She can earn her salvation by giving away her possessions, becoming a nun. He even went so far to say this. If perfection is possible, it is obligatory. 
This is what Pelagius said. If perfection is possible, it is obligatory. It's required. Pelagius taught that humans are free to choose the good, that we can make ourselves perfect, that the will is not corrupted by sin. Now, a North, thank heavens, a North African bishop named Augustine read about Pelagius' views, and he said that this error, this theological error, struck at the heart of the Christian message. And he says, isn't that exactly what Jesus has come to help? Those who can't help themselves? Now, he was a, he was a bishop, after all. He was, he was four people becoming nuns. But he said, don't confuse yourself. Responding to a calling is a response to God's grace, not earning it. Because that's antithetical to grace. He says, whatever you do, whatever you're calling you're going to do, is not to achieve something, to be perfect, but it's in response to God's grace. Now, I, I never really thought much about this until I realized how imperfect I am. You know, oftentimes we don't think about these kinds of things until we come face-to-face with our own brokenness, the own, our own crackedness. So a number of years ago, I was serving a different church. And one weekday, I was meeting for lunch with the elder who was responsible for the young adult ministry I was leading at the time. And his name was Paul. And we got together. We talked about strategic planning, upcoming events, goals. We read through the minutes. And then we were done with our lunch. We left the church, and he said, I'll walk with you. And so we were walking down Peachtree Street in Atlanta. And Paul knew that I had just gone through a divorce. And I was struggling. And as you can imagine, from my upbringing, I was raised with a one-life, one-wife policy. And I was a failure. I realized I wasn't perfect. And so as we're walking down Peachtree Street, cars are whizzing by back and forth. And Paul says, Jeff, how are you doing? And I didn't mince words. I was raw, and I said, I'm honestly not well. I've, I feel like a failure. I feel like I've let God down. I don't know if God loves me. I'm questioning that. Look at what I've done. I work at a church, and look what, what I've, I've made a mess of. And there we were on Peachtree Street. He looked me in the eye. Two awkward 6'5 white guys. And he turns, he looks at me. And he embraces me, and he grabs me, and he hugs me, and he begins to shake me. He says, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And there for 30 seconds, he shook the love of Jesus into me. As tears are streaming down my face, there's car wrecks all over Peachtree. People are just like, what in the world is going on there? And it was this moment in my life that I can point to that God's grace became real. I really needed it. And someone was willing to shake the love of Christ into my heart. And I hope you have somebody in your life who will embrace you and shake the love of Jesus into your heart. I hope you can do that for somebody else. Not that we can earn it, but the good news of the gospel is that the good and gracious love of God has come to us in Jesus Christ. This is true for all families. No one is perfect, but God loves us anyway. And this is true for Adam and Eve. It's true for Cain and Abel, Abraham and Sarah, David and Solomon, the Apostle Paul, the disciples. It's true for us too. No matter our imperfection, God loves us in Jesus Christ. That is the heart of the gospel. Let's pray. 
Gracious and loving God, we thank you for this good news that we hear in Jesus Christ. Lord, that you are for us, that you love us. And Lord, I pray if there's any doubt in our heart of your love, that someone might shake the love of Jesus into our lives. We thank you for the good news we hear in Jesus Christ. You've been listening to the RPC Sermons Podcast. Please let us know you're here by visiting roswellpress.org and signing our digital friendship register. May the grace and love of God be with you today and throughout the rest of your week. Thanks for listening.